I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. For the last weeks, regular listeners will know that I've been pretty focused on the state of our democracy. We all need to pay attention. At the heart of democracy, of course, is elections. And so today, we get to focus on the politics and probabilities and look ahead to the big vote this fall, the midterm elections. Midterms always have a story to tell, of course, and most frequently, though not always, it's not a good one for the party in power. This year, with the early indicators, the special elections, the presidential approval ratings, and generic ballots all pointing to Democrats' strength, we wanted to find out how likely is that blue wave to becoming a reality. Specifically, can Democrats really flip the House? If you want to talk about district-by-district voting for the U.S. House of Representatives, it's hard to find anyone better or more plugged in than David Wasserman, U.S. House editor for the Cook Political Report. He covers it all. But before I begin this conversation with David, I want to tell you about our show's sponsor, who's also his employer, the Cook Political Report. We all saw the results from Pennsylvania 18 and Connor Lamb. We'll ask David about that. But what about immigration and tariffs and guns? And what's in store for the next stage of congressional map drawing? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News's Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. And one last item before we begin. My great thanks to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It makes a big difference, and I'm really grateful. So... If you like these conversations, you know my ask. I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. As always, of course, my parallel ask, if you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with David Wasserman. David, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Midterm elections, I guess this means you don't sleep again until November? <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Uh, you know, I've been doing this 11 years now, covering the House for the Cook Political Report. I've never seen interest on this level before. That's uh, that's very, very interesting. So, so I guess, first give me the why on that. I feel like I have my own guess, as everyone else does, and <laughs> there's, you know, never been interest in politics at all. But uh, let, let me hear your theory. Um, why, why is interest running so high? We're more divided as a country than we've been in a very, very long time, arguably since the Civil War. We've also seen Democrats wake up after the 2016 election. I, I didn't sense this kind of urgency from Democrats for much of 2016, uh, and and now we are seeing uh, a, a lot of urgency and uh, heightened enthusiasm. And and there are a couple reasons why the enthusiasm gap is benefiting Democrats, and we can get into those. Yeah, and and I want to ask you about that and about uh, which of the factors. I mean, there's so many factors that we're seeing, presidential approval, um, uh, the, the generic ballot, the enthusiasm gap, but then we're also seeing, obviously, specific special elections. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be I'm curious, and I'll get into it with you, um, you know, which of these 
tea leaves? How do you weight them? And, and where do you really put your emphasis? But um, the, let's get into it with the big question. I mean, this is the one you just hinted at it. It's the one I think that everyone really wants to know. Um, there's, there's that blue wave that everyone's talking about. Is it coming? At the moment, it looks like it's, it's coming in a big way. And eight months is a long time in politics, obviously. Uh, at this point in 2006 and 2010, when uh, we had the last two House switches, it wasn't yet apparent that the House was in, you know, in deep danger for the party holding it. Now it is. And that means two things. Number one, Republicans can take some steps proactively to, to try and uh, try and make individual races better. Uh, but number two, it also cuts against Republicans in the sense that there are a lot of incumbents leaving uh, because uh, it's apparent now that they're going to have tough races or they just don't want to deal with this president. Yeah, uh, Charlie Cook's most recent piece uh, came out today, a, a creeping sense of doom for Republicans. Um, he notes that 73 seats are potentially in play. Um, is that how you see it as well? I, although I guess Charlie probably gets his house data from you, huh? Well, that would be correct. And let's be clear, those 73 seats are varying levels of, 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 of vulnerable for, for Republicans. So uh, we have uh, seven districts held by Republicans that are either leaning or likely Democratic right now. Uh, we have um, 22, I believe, toss-ups uh, on the Republican side. So that together would be enough seats for Democrats to get to 24, but not all of the toss-ups break the same way. We've never had that happen. So uh, to me, the races that are going to decide House control are the ones that are in our lean Republican category at the moment. Uh, suburbs like Kansas City, uh, in the suburbs of Detroit, uh, some, of, some of the races that, that Democrats are polling, you know, within five points of the incumbent Republican, but not necessarily ahead of them. Uh, I expect those those to, to materialize, at least a few of them for Democrats, which is why we probably give Democrats a, you know, somewhere between a 60 and 70 percent chance of taking back the House. And am I reading it right? 19 more GOP seats in the lean Republican column. So so 19, when you talk about that lean Republican, uh, where, where you think that things might turn, are you looking at those 19 seats or did I, uh, am I getting this wrong? Yes. Yes. We are looking at those 19 seats as the majority makers or breakers. And one aspect of 2018 that's unique, in the time I've been doing this, I haven't seen this little overlap between the battleground of competitive House and Senate races. Um, for example, California is home to seven Republicans sitting in districts that voted for Hillary Clinton. We're not going to have a competitive Senate race there. Uh, and, you know, Donald Trump and Republicans don't count on California, New York, or New Jersey for Senate seats or electoral college votes. But there are an awful lot of Republican uh, members still representing districts in those states. And together, those three states uh, are, are home to more than half of the Demo half of the seats Democrats would need for a majority. Once you throw in Pennsylvania, that gets Democrats to about two-thirds of what they need for a majority. So we're talking about a handful of states that are going to be very consequential in the battle for the House, and they're very different places uh, than, than the races that are going to decide the Senate. Well, I think after what uh, the tax bill, what they did to property taxes and the inability to deduct them federally in uh, some of the states that you just mentioned, California, New York, uh, yeah, counting. I think counting on votes in in those places will be 
very, very tough after that. Although, actually, I want to talk to you about the tax bill um, because it, why, why don't we get right into that? Um, it didn't make a difference in uh, Pennsylvania 18, did it? So wh- why and, – and I guess they ended up – in fact, polling Republicans ended up pulling the pro-tax bill ads. So th- the tax bill, is it going to be the factor that Republicans thought it would be? What's kind of gone you know, wrong on that from – um, their pers- Republican point of view, or um, has it not? And they just didn't necessarily position it right, and they'll get it right. Well, Chris, one of the reasons I, I believed that Pennsylvania 18 was leaning towards Lamb before the election uh, was that Republicans kept changing their message in the district. At first, they attacked Connor Lamb uh, by linking him to Pelosi, then they ran on on the tax cut bill. Finally, they pivoted to his record as a prosecutor. Uh, that told me that there wasn't one line of attack that was doing a, a lot of damage. Uh, now, Republicans will tell you in the aftermath of their loss that the that campaigning on Pelosi and the tax bill did energize Republicans to make the race as close as it was. I'm not f- sure I fully buy that in a district that voted for Trump by 20. Um, one thing I will say is that we didn't see Republican turnout in that race plummet the same way it did in, for instance, Alabama. Uh, so there's some evidence that the field campaign that uh, Paul Ryan's political operation uh, had in that district and the messaging on taxes and Pelosi did help get some Republicans out. But still, when you're losing a district that voted for your for your party's president by 20 points, that's, that's a big sign of danger. I'm curious how you're viewing – 2018 in terms of top down versus bottom up. I mean, house races, you know, everything you always hear it and everything is about, you know, run a candidate that is true to the district. Um, at the same time, obviously, there are top-down factors, uh, whether that's the economy, presidential favorability, um, you know, the generic ballot stuff, you know, feeling about the parties overall um, versus the, the actual individuals running in that district at that specific time. How, how, how do you usually think about that balance and how are you feeling 2018 is, is looking in terms of that versus previous years? Well, there's a baseline of of what's happening in a year, and clearly things have shifted massively in Democrats' direction since 2016. Not only as a function of uh, of, of who's energized, uh, you know, I think 2018 is on track to be the year of the angry white female college graduate. Uh, that's that's the kind of prototype of the voter that's most energized against President Trump at the moment. Uh, but it's also because of who's not energized and. Trump's base has a similar problem to the Obama base of, you know, 2010 and 2014, which is that uh, those voters showed up for the the candidate that they believed in in presidential years, um, whether it's Trump or Obama. But a lot of them were new new to the process. A lot of them hadn't voted in a, in a very long time. In Trump's case, in Obama's case, it was. Uh, mainly young people and and non-whites. In Trump's case, it's working class whites with without a college degree, and that group, a lot of them hadn't shown up to vote since Ross Perot was on the ballot. Now uh, we're in a midterm situation where you know these voters typically have never voted in midterms unless like it was Jesse Ventura on the ballot in Minnesota, uh, but that's a big problem for for the Trump coalition and a lot of Trump's voters. 
um, have very poor opinions of Republican congressional leadership. One of the reasons they love Trump so much is that he attacked Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell during the campaign. And so I don't think those Republicans can count on these Trump voters to show up and save their congressional majorities. Yeah, he sure did. And that, that's very interesting. He's, he's, you know, obviously much more connected with them now. Um, but you this, also asked, yes, please. you know, what role do candidates play here? And that's really going to be up to Republicans. If, if this is a nationalized election, then Democrats are going to win back the House uh, and, you know, do very well in Senate races uh, for the most part. But if this is a if this is a, a an election where candidates matter, then Republicans do have opportunities to define their opponents and, and make them unacceptable to voters. And I, I do think that was very difficult for Republicans against Connor Lamb, but it could be easier against some other Democrats running. Well, what are the overall lessons you're taking from these special elections? Uh, you know, we've had the benefit of uh, quite a quite a few of them at this point. Most recently, obviously, um, Connor Lamb. Um, do you look? Are, are those the the for you? Are, are those the best data to be able to extrapolate from, or are they so district specific again that you, you're hesitant to uh, you know extrapolate beyond what happened in those individual districts? It's difficult to project specials onto November uh, because turnout has fluctuated so much. Uh, for example, last June we had uh, two two special elections held on the same day in Georgia and South Carolina. The Georgia election we saw sixty million dollars spent and fifty six percent turnout. Uh, the South Carolina special election we saw, uh, you know, maybe just over a million dollars spent in that race and nineteen percent turnout. The result was that Democrats in both races came within about three points of victory. And one of the reasons why it was such a surprisingly close race in South Carolina was that uh, Democrats were kind of the only ones voting um, and and came came much closer than they should have uh, when it came to winning that seat. The best indicators, I think, uh, are, are what happened in Virginia uh, because you had a gubernatorial level turnout. I think that's going to be similar to to the type of turnout we'll see in in the fall, uh, and de- Democrats did exceptionally well in House of Delegates races in Virginia. They picked up 16 seats, um, or actually 15, I believe, and that was much higher than we expected. In, in a lot of those races, Democrats didn't even spend much money, which won't be the case in the fall uh, in House races, but. The, you know, it would have been one thing had Democrats just picked up delegate seats in northern Virginia in those inner D.C. suburbs where voters clearly don't like the president. But Democrats also picked up seats in the Richmond suburbs in Virginia Beach. And those are the kinds of indications uh, that that this is a big problem for Republicans. You may not be aware, but on the, the day today that we're recording this, you um, just went right in between. There's a, a bit of a Twitter debate going on between Nate Cohn of uh, The New York Times and Nate Silver right now on uh, their their Twitter debating the importance of the Virginia gubernatorial, the, the Virginia races um, that you just mentioned versus uh, the special elections. So um, anyhow, you're, you're, you know, right on the pulse. That's, uh, you know, trying to trying to figure that out is, uh, you know, very, you know, very much in the mindset right now. Um, yeah. One thing that I've learned in, in punditocracy is that uh, I, you know, I'm not going to get in between the Nates, uh, <laughs> no. but I will say my middle name is Nathan. So I don't know what it is about that, but it seems like a, a lot of uh, 
a lot of the Nate Nathan folks have gone into this business. Okay, note to all expecting parents right now. You know, know what you're getting in for if uh, if you put Nate in the name or or Nathan. There's uh, there's trouble ahead. Um, you know, I'm curious, and this is you know going to be a you know a little bit silly, I think. But uh, a moment ago, you mentioned uh, Paul Ryan, and uh, last time we had midterms, 2014, uh, there was a little known economics professor, David Bratt, um, who primaried uh, then House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. Um, doesn't look like Paul Ryan's got any uh, real primary concerns. Um, but what about the general election? Um, does the iron stash, Randy Bryce, uh, is there any chance there? From my vantage point, Randy Bryce uh, is not a threat to Paul Ryan. Uh, and look, there's been a lot of questions swirling about whether Ryan will run. Uh, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that Ryan will run and increasingly convinced that he will bow out um, of, of his party's leadership in 2019. But uh, that's, that's a separate question. Uh, I don't think... Most Democrats are fully aware of Bryce's baggage, uh, some of the personal issues in his past that are sure to surface during this campaign. And Ryan, as opposed to, to Cantor, has really uh, embraced the idea of getting back to his district and staying connected to, to the district. So I think that's in his favor. The member of the Republican leadership who's not polling as well as she should be is Kathy McMorris-Rogers in, in eastern Washington, uh, mm. which is Spokane. And uh, you know, coincidentally, that was the district where the last uh, sitting speaker oh, Foley. Uh, lost re-election, Tom Foley, was uh, in 1994. Interesting. Okay, so that's, uh, that's one to take a, take a look on. Um, Nancy Pelosi. How should so, so Connor Lamb and you know clearly he knows his district, um, not in an angry way. I didn't take it, but in a very direct way, very clear way, um, ran against Nancy Pelosi. Uh, you know, said he would not support her as uh, a leader for the Democrats. Um, how should Democrats? How, how well? How should Democrats be playing that, or maybe more accurately from from what you do for a living, how do you see Democrats as playing that? Is it wholly dependent on their district, and if it's a you know real blue-leaning district, then they're fine with Pelosi, and if it's not, then maybe they raise questions? Or How, how is Nancy Pelosi playing within the Democratic side? Democrats did something smart in, in Pennsylvania 18, and that's that uh, DCCC, which is basically Nancy Pelosi's political operation, largely stayed out. Uh, they didn't run ads uh, to nearly, extent, nearly the extent that the NRCC and Paul Ryan's operation did. And that allowed Lamb to credibly make the case that he was not beholden to either party, which was a really, really big deal in that special election. Uh, that's not going to be the case everywhere in 2018. But what I'm finding is that the Democrats running for Congress uh, genuinely, genuinely believe it's time for new leadership in their own party. And it's not just Connor Lamb. It's, uh, it's candidates running in very closely divided congressional districts where you know, either Trump or Clinton won narrowly. But it's also uh, – younger women who are running, who believe it's time for, for new leadership uh, and, and that Pelosi has overstayed her welcome. So, you know, whether she can become speaker again, I think depends on how many seats Democrats gain. If they win the majority by five seats, I don't think she's got the votes to be speaker. If Democrats win the majority by 20 seats, that could be a different story. 
Interesting. And on the Republican side, uh, Trump himself uh, went into Pennsylvania 18, no success, uh, got active uh, in the Senate special election in Alabama, no success. Um, how active – I mean we're, we're seeing that candidates, Republican candidates are – seem to be in a position where they do want to attach themselves to Trump. Um, do they have to? Is that because, you know, they, the, the base demands it? Um, do you want Donald Trump showing up in your district if you're a Republican? It depends on the district. But what we're finding out is just as Obama's appeal was not transferable in 2010, Trump's is not transferable in 2018. Uh, this is almost like watching 2010 in reverse. Wow. That's very, very interesting. Um, and, and David, to, to close things out, um, how do you do what you do? Um, take, take me behind the curtain. There are 435 U.S. congressional districts. Um, you seem to know each one of them like you live there. I mean, you were talking about, uh, you know, specific districts, the suburbs of Kansas City, um, Detroit, you know, Pennsylvania, the, uh, you know, a, a district in Spokane, Washington, California. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll give you some leeway and not give away too many of your trade secrets. But generally, you know, what's your approach? Do you have to spend time in each district? Is it reading about each one? Is it following key players on Twitter or elsewhere? Um, how, how do you do what you do for a living? I wish we had the time to go deeper into some of these districts, actually. But um, you know, I wish I had the time to get to every congressional district and see what's going on on the ground. But, you know, uh, that actually wouldn't be the best use of our time. <laughs> um, and, and you know, there's there's kind of a debate. Should we go out and and uh, and get people's opinions at the at the grocery store in each district or would it be more valuable to be looking at polling data uh, that uh, that's being compiled here. And, and the answer is, you know, looking at the polling data uh, tells you tells you a lot more uh, than the man or woman on the street. But I do think we're at a crossroads in the in the political analysis world. Uh, in the last couple of years, we've seen the rise of a lot of armchair modelers who are are using basically uh, just data to try and uh, predict what's going to happen in races. And I, although I do think s some have done it more successfully than others, I, you know, I really admire, uh, for example, the work that, that Nate Silver and Nate Cohn do. Uh, I, I do think there are a lot of, lot of uh, amateurs out there who are, who are kind of getting it wrong. And one of the reasons why they are is that there is a human element to races. There are some things that are just not measurable uh, with, with numbers. And so what we try and do is we try and meet with as many candidates as possible and, and find out their, their, their case for why they're going to win. Uh, I think that's very important to, to understanding what's happening in individual races. And I think that's why we've, we've had a pretty decent track record over the years of, of, of forecasting uh, house races. And uh, I've, you know, I, for example, I spent the last week meeting with about a dozen Democratic candidates in some of the most competitive districts in the country. And sometimes I, I feel like, uh, like you know, Amy Walter and I or Siskel and Ebert, where we're giving two thumbs up or two thumbs down. Um, there's, there's clearly some candidates who uh, are promising and, and potential future stars. And there are others who, you know, you, you, you hear them and hear their case and say, you know what, I don't think this person's going to be able to hack it in a district that's significantly rural or Republican. So uh, that, it's, it's a mix of art and science.
Understood. And if I promise not to hold you to it in November, but as of right now, um, what, what, what's your forecast? Uh, what number of seats do you feel as of this moment, understanding that things change, um, do you think are going to go in which direction? Well, I go back to 2016, and you know, I, I, I like so many others, didn't believe for much of the cycle that, that Trump could become president. But around September, I started studying this one scenario, and the scenario was that Hillary Clinton was winning a lot, uh, winning millions of extra votes in places that weren't going to help her win the electoral college. So I wrote about that scenario, and then on election night, um, I started seeing the numbers coming in from Michigan and Pennsylvania, and. Uh, Wisconsin, I, I said, oh, my God, this is actually happening. And uh, in the same way, I think we could see kind of an anomalous result in 2018 where um, or because you just have such a uh, such a different House and Senate battleground. You know, the Senate's going to be decided by rural America and the House can be decided in the suburbs. You could have a have a split decision where just as in 2010, the president's party holds on to the Senate but loses control of the House and uh and I think there's a pretty big window of opportunity for that to happen. Okay. Well, you did write that in 2016. You did have Connor Lamb uh, in PA 18. So uh, we, we best uh, pay attention to what you have to say. So uh, um, possibly a split there. Um, David, thank you. Thank you for your time and uh, your insights as always. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right. Take care. That was my conversation with David Wasserman. Like I said, it's nearly impossible to find anyone who knows more about House elections than David. I always love having him as a guest. My thanks to David for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.